This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics podcast for Wednesday, February 21st. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau locks horns with the federal Conservative leader, and it gets ugly. Should Canadians get used to this political rancor? The Power Panel is here with their take. And the Alberta government is fuming after the Prime Minister announced housing cash for Edmonton without looping in the province. Alberta Minister Jason Nixon is standing by to explain why. We start in Edmonton, where Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announced millions of dollars today to help the city build more housing. But the provincial government was nowhere to be seen. Trudeau was asked about the absence. The mayor has been leading on this, uh, you know, and calling for a trilateral meeting between the federal government, the municipality, and the province. We know everyone has a role to play. The federal government will be there. The municipality is there. We need the province to make sure it's keeping, stepping up uh, to help the most vulnerable people uh, reach home. For the province's response, I'm joined now by Alberta's Minister of Seniors, Community and Social Services, Jason Nixon. Minister Nixon, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me on. Uh, normally, when a prime minister comes to a province with tens of millions of dollars for housing, people are happy. But you're upset about this today. What, what's the issue? Well, we're happy to see the government investing in uh, the federal government investing in our province when it comes to housing. We're, we're frustrated because one, uh, it's not enough. We continue to be shortchanged in this province when compared to other uh, jurisdictions. And second, it's clear that Justin Trudeau's government continues to want to work without the province, uh, and that's that's frustrating. Uh, and I think it's very frustrating for Albertans who need us to be tackling this serious housing crisis that's been created by the federal government in a significant way. But we can't do that in a cooperative way with the federal government. If they won't even talk to us again. As I said earlier today, sneaking into town at night without telling the province what's going on, uh, and then leaving, and then having the nerve to tell TV cameras that you're somehow trying to work with the province when nothing could be further from the truth, uh, clearly based on the fact that you don't even have the province at your announcement. But shortchanged how? Uh, These are are deals that are done with municipalities uh, in return for speeding up zoning laws. I know you're talking about per capita funding, but the whole point of the housing accelerator is to incentivize municipalities to change rules. And if, if you take that away and just give it to them on per capita, where goes the incentive to change zoning laws? Well, to be clear, I'm talking per capita by province. I do think that we agree with the federal government on the need to reduce red tape. Our province has been doing that in a significant way, and we do support Minister Fraser's efforts to do that across the country. Uh, But when we say per capita, we want to make sure that Alberta and all of our cities are receiving uh, the same funding as you see in places like Quebec or Vancouver uh, or B.C. Uh, So let's just take the accelerated program as an example. And it's just one example of housing spending that's taking place in Canada right now. Uh, By our math, with this latest announcement, the federal government government still short about $100 million. And I will point out, as you know, that both of our largest cities' mayors have joined me in that call to make sure that the federal government actually invests in Alberta uh, on a per capita way in the same way that you see taking place in other provinces. And the other thing that concerns us very much, and we've raised this with Minister Fraser, and I have some hope that this will be addressed, is that this continues to only be also Edmonton and Calgary. And in our province, we have to do a tremendous amount of work when it comes to what I call the donut cities, but those would be cities around our, our two largest cities. So places like Airdrie or Okotoks or Leduc up here in Edmonton, where I'm at right now. Uh, and this, all these announcements are sorely not getting to those areas, which we need to see significant investment in. But the main point is this. The Prime Minister says he wants to work with us. We've been reaching out to the federal government to do a pretty significant housing deal, similar to what you see in BC and Quebec. Uh, and 
it, crickets. Uh, we hear that they may eventually come to the table. The Prime Minister indicated that today. But for him to look at the cameras and say with a straight face that he's working with this province, uh, when he doesn't even let us know he's in town and is continuing to uh, refuse to do a housing deal inside Alberta, uh, is ridiculous. Well, do you think any of that is, is sort of, you know, we've had Premier Daniel Smith on this show many times. She has called Stephen Gilboa a menace. She called for him to be fired. She's attacked the federal government policies on any number of issues. Uh, I mean, is there not a two-way street on this, Minister? Well, Stephen Gabo is a menace. He's continued to move forward with multiple unconstitutional policies that have been torn down by the Supreme Court, and I suspect that multiple more will be torn down. That's another example of why it's outrageous that the Prime Minister would come to Alberta and did not even bother to inform the Premier that he was here uh, and sit down and talk about those important issues. But Albertans and Canadians need us to put this all aside. And so for me, this is not a partisan issue. Our job is to handle the biggest crisis of our time, which is housing. It's created by this federal Liberal government, but we could put that behind us and instead come to the table and have a meaningful work to be able to create more doors for Albertans and Canadians. And right now, from what I see from this Prime Minister and his government, they have no intention of working with Alberta in a meaningful way. Uh, we'll continue to call upon them to do so, uh, and we are prepared to continue to put big money in when it comes to housing in Alberta, uh, but we need the Alberta go or the federal government to show up uh, and participate uh, and not continue to come here and have press conferences with uh, hollow announcements. Uh, how is the housing problem created exclusively by, by the federal government? I mean, they're not the reason there's been restrictive zones zoning laws. There's, they're not the reason there's been slow municipal permit approvals. They're not the reason uh, provincial governments ha have increased their land development costs in a lot of places. There, there's a myriad of factors there. I mean, how can you say this is entirely the federal government's fault? Well, it's not entirely the federal government's fault, but they're the majority uh, where the fault lands. I mean, Justin Trudeau has brought forward policies that have created an inflationary crisis, made the cost of living uh, extraordinarily hard for uh, all Canadians. But further to that, what he has done, and his government did, was stop actually working with the province of Alberta, for example, when it came to things like CMHC funding over the last several years, uh, which has taken our uh, situation in Alberta uh, from being short 20,000 houses to being short between 130 and 150,000 houses over the next five years directly as a result of the federal government's decision at one point not to even participate uh, in dealing with things like affordable housing uh, in Alberta. So, you know, here's their opportunity. They say they want to work with our province. We're here. We're spending $9 billion with our partners over the next four or five years to create 13,000 more units of affordable housing. My department with our partners has already created almost 5,000 new units since 2019. Uh, and we're going to continue to work on that with or without the federal government. Uh, but if they want to participate, they need to come here and get to work and stop flying over uh, and and ignoring the province uh, and actually get to work in a meaningful way for Canadians. Okay, well, you heard what the Prime Minister said there today, uh, Minister, that uh, they did go there and get to work on, on childcare deals to try to get things down to a $10 a day childcare average. And the Prime Minister repeated what I've heard from Jenna Suds, who's now the minister responsible for that file, that your government is sitting on the money the federal government gave you uh, to, to build this program to lower costs and haven't put your own money into this. So you want them to work with you but their argument is that on something as essential as affordable childcare, you haven't really been living up to your end of the bargain on that arrangement. Well, the Premier in the last several days has made some adjustments to our processes here in Alberta to make sure that money can come into play uh, and has, has addressed that. But again, I will submit to you, this is an example of showing that the Prime Minister clearly doesn't want to work with us on housing. Because when he said that, he was asked a direct question about working with us on housing. Uh, and he chose to pivot to daycare, uh, which is a very important issue and a fair thing to bring up. But it shows that he has absolutely nothing to deliver for the people of Alberta when it comes to housing. Right. But, but on that, I mean, maybe there is a lack of trust, Minister, that it took this long. I mean, the, the child care deal was signed a long time ago, right? It's not like this was signed six weeks ago. 
Well, if we want to talk about lack of trust, we've had a federal government uh, who's been working overtime to destroy the largest industry in this country and the largest industry in our province has lost multiple times now at the Supreme Court for measures that they've done. Uh, and certainly we don't trust them. That aside, we need to put that uh, to the side and we need to get to work on creating doors. And Alberta's government has been clear to the federal government. We are already investing in significant ways and we're prepared to invest even more in a partnership with them. But they got to stop ignoring uh, us and start supporting us the same way that we see in places like BC or Quebec, where strangely, it appears uh, that the federal government is focused more on votes. Uh, and, and that is unfortunate because this issue is an important issue to every province, and we have to do everything we can to be able to create housing from coast to coast. And I have to point out, Alberta is the largest growing place in the country, uh, and is disproportionately taking uh, more people into Alberta right now because of the affordability crisis that you see in places like Toronto or Vancouver. So it's very important that the federal government gets to work with us and, and puts uh, aside uh, their partisan issues. And creates more houses for Canadians. You referenced the working with British Columbia. We saw the Prime Minister there with Premier Eby announcing $2 billion in federal seed capital for the BC Builds program. That was something that was already in place that they came in afterwards. I know you suggested in your letter to Sean Fraser, the federal housing minister, that you want to work with them on something like this. I mean, what's stopping you from building it and then inviting them in? Like, like I, know, I accept there's a lack of trust. We see it all the time. We've talked about it on this program many times. But there is a shared interest in getting houses for Canadians. So how do you move past this now, uh, Minister, uh, now that everyone is sort of like taking shots at each other today? Well, we have similar programs to what's taking place in BC and other mechanisms that we could do, I think, to amplify what's taking place in BC here in Alberta. And we are open uh, to a deal. I made that clear to Mr. Fraser a, a couple weeks ago in a very productive bilateral meeting uh, in, in Calgary. We need a little more detail on what actually uh, has taken place in BC to fully answer that question. But we are the door is wide open for that conversation that's made has been made clear. But I also be clear, it's also been made clear for about a year uh, to the federal government that Alberta wants to invest in partnership with them uh, when it comes to housing. And we have not ha seen any significant movement from the federal government. And why you see frustration in Alberta today is the Prime Minister, the leader of the country, flew into Edmonton, Alberta, and said that Alberta does not want to work on housing and that they need us to come to the table. And we have been at the table. And what really needs to happen is we need the Prime Minister's cabinet to show up and get to work with Alberta to solve this problem for our province. Okay, uh, just as a, a final point on, on another topic, in a little over two hours or so from now, Premier Smith is going to speak to the province. She's bought airtime uh, on the private networks out there. Uh, what, I, I don't know how much, how willing you are to scoop your boss, but what can we expect to hear from the Premier tonight? It's going to be a conversation about financial choices and the financial situation. Where is this going to go? Well, I'm not going to scoop the Premier because I think that's probably a bad career move. But what I will say is what I, th I think you will see from Premier Smith is what you see often when she's out addressing our province is a clear vision for where our province needs to go, uh, lay out uh, what the challenges that we have as a province, but also the successes that we've had here in Alberta, and lay out a clear vision for Albertans where we have to, have to head next. Alberta Minister of Seniors, Community and Social Services still in that job because he didn't scoop his boss. Jason Nixon, thank you for joining me today. Appreciate it. The Conservative Party is facing criticism that its support for Ukraine is waning. This after it voted against a Canada-Ukraine free trade deal earlier this month. So, how is that being received by the large Ukrainian diaspora in Canada? Radio Canada's Christian Noel visited a Manitoba riding with a large Ukrainian-Canadian population, and he joins me now. Christian, good to have you on the show. Hello. So you went to Selkirk, a lot of Ukrainian-Canadians living there, and it's a riding held by Conservative MP James Bazan, a strong public supporter of Ukraine. What did you hear from his constituents? 
People are not really happy about that vote. Uh, they're frustrated, they're surprised, and, and they're angry. Selkirk, north of Manitoba, of uh, Winnipeg, is a huge Ukrainian population. About 40, 40% of the population there is Ukrainian. And, and, and they still have family fighting, and they feel that they need that free, free trade agreement, one, to fight right now, and to rebuild after the fight. And everyone I spoke with, Ukrainian or of non-Ukrainian descent, they don't understand the logic behind the position of the Conservative Party voting against the free trade agreement with Ukraine only because the word carbon tax is in the agreement. Here's a few things uh, that was uh, said to me when I was there. Just for that single reason, that's idiotic. It's disappointing. I mean, I am a Conservative, so that is disappointing. <laughs> But um, I'm torn because I understand their, their ideals as well. Um, but it does... Yeah, it kind of hurts the Ukrainians. It's a shame, really. I mean, we live in a world that's shades of gray for the most part. But for a lot of this, this is a lot of us. This is a very black and white issue. It's it's frustrating that one little part of the carbon tax is is going to negate such a, a good and strong um, thing that should be supported. I mean the. Conservatives are very stuck in their ways, and that's a very bad reason to vote something down. Okay, it's interesting to hear that uh, from Bazan's constituents, but you didn't just speak to voters. You also spoke to the Ukrainian minister for the government of Ukraine who worked on the trade deal. What are they saying about the concerns that conservatives are raising here? Well, first they wanted to set the record straight. There's nothing in the free trade agreement that Canada and Ukraine just renegoti renegotiated that forces a carbon tax on Ukraine. Actually, Ukraine already has a carbon tax, mm -hmm. had had one for the past 12 years, and they need one if they want to join the European Union. Uh, second, uh, yes, the word carbon tax uh, said The, the trade representative is in the document, but it's not binding. And at the same time, he also wanted to say that he understands that the conservatives are against the carbon tax here in Canada for their own international, uh, in, internal political reasons here in Canada. And he was trying to, to walk that line a little bit when we spoke with him. The concern raised by conservative party, it could be as well a, an element of discussion between Ukraine and Canada about what should be the future of the of the carbon tax but definitely we do not see the uh, fta as obliging us to impose this or another rate of carbon tax so it's it remains the domain of sovereign decision of ukrainian government okay this is interesting so constituents don't like the way they voted ukraine says the reasoning behind the vote is incorrect what is james bazan saying about all of this Well, to us, not so, not a whole lot much, because we asked for an interview with him several times, and he declined the interview. And when we showed up in his writing, he was here in Ottawa at the same time. But it's clear that uh, Mr. Bazan feels between a rock and a hard place, between the position of his party on carbon tax and his own position on Ukraine, uh, that he has defended several times in the House of Commons. And so uh, he did not speak with us, but he spoke with uh, a Ukrainian television uh, YouTube mm. channel, uh, Contact TV, uh, to try to defend his position, to explain that from his point of view, the liberals, by putting carbon tax in that agreement, were trying to put a poison pill to force the conservatives into a trap by voting in favor or against it. And he really wanted to explain and try to differentiate the difference between his position and explain basically that directly to the people affected by it why he voted that way. Right. So, so the liberals have been trying to use this as a wedge against the conservatives uh, to say that they're abandoning Ukraine. I mean, what's your sense? Where does this leave the conservatives and Bazan in particular in his writing with 
Ukrainian Canadian voters. The sense I get from the people there is that Mr. Bezant is not going to lose his writing right. because of that issue alone. And for the other writings with a lot of Ukrainian descent uh, people living in them uh, across uh, Western Canada, that's not going to be an issue either, only that issue. But the noise around the issue is starting to raise some concerns in the Ukrainian populi- uh, population in Canada. And it's enough to force the conservative to be more vocal about their defense on Ukraine, right. about the lack or uh, perceived that they are from the conservative perspective, the lack of help that the, ca- the Canadian government is giving to Ukraine. It forces them in a situation where they feel they need to explain themselves better mm-hmm. and they understand that in a, at a certain level, it might hurt them a little bit. All right, Christian, thank you for explaining it to us. That's uh, Christian Noel with Radio Canada. You're welcome. Well, debate over the Liberals' pending online harms legislation gets very personal today. It's a bill the Liberals say will help combat hate speech, terrorist content, and some violent material on the Internet. But Conservative leader Pierre Polyev calls it an attack on freedom of expression. And he says Justin Trudeau is not the leader to legislate on this issue. I point out the irony that someone who spent the first half of his adult life as a practicing racist who dressed up in hideous racist costumes so many times he says he can't remember them all, should then be the arbiter on what constitutes hate. I think responsible leadership is about dealing in facts, actually reading a piece of legislation before uh, he starts telling people what he thinks it does, uh, and then having a rigorous debate in Parliament about how to best protect kids. He's not interested in that. He's interested in hurling insults. Okay, so that's maybe just a preview of how this is going to go when the legislation gets tabled in Parliament. We're going to bring in the Wednesday Power Panel uh, to talk about this now. Jordan Likeness is a former NDP strategist. Shachi Curl is the president of the Angus Reid Institute. Amanda Alvaro is a former Liberal Party communication strategist. And Gary Keller is a former chief of staff to conservative cabinet ministers. Uh, hello, gang. Uh, as you just heard uh, in those clips, uh, a lot going on there today. Gary, uh, why would Pierre Polyev respond like that? to a question about legislation nobody has seen and nobody has read and what he intends to do about it. What do you make of this? Well, I think uh, the poly of conservatives have known that this bill is coming for some time. There's been lots of talk about what might or might not be in that uh, bill. And so the question was asked uh, at a press conference today. And uh, I think he took an opportunity to really hammer home uh, how he feels about the Trudeau government's potential, what could be potentially in this bill. I mean, this is a government that uh, has, uh, on the uh, Emergencies Act, they brought in the Emergencies Act. And uh, at the time, the Prime Minister said a lot of people had unacceptable views, uh, and then the Emergencies Act was found to be uh, unconstitutional by the federal court. There's also uh, a number of, uh, there's obviously a, a personal uh, relationship here between the Prime Minister and, and Mr. Trudeau. They clearly don't like each, each other very much. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when the Prime Minister talks about hurling insults, you know, uh, I think Mr. Polyev has taken some of the insults uh, recently to heart. I mean, you had the Minister of Justice call him an effing tool on the floor of the House of Commons. And you've had all sorts of accusations about Mr. Polyev, uh, about being in bed with Vladimir Putin and not standing up for Ukraine. And so I think he, he punched back a little bit today. Uh, I, agree, I, I believe that not everybody likes that kind of style, but 
Mr. Polyev. There's a little bit like let Bartlett be Bartlett, let Mr. Polyev be Mr. Polyev, and he's going to he's going to punch when he has a chance to punch. Uh, okay, uh, Amanda, what was your take on this? Mr. Polyev also said certain things that he thought maybe this legislation could lead to the banning of things like the Diary of Anne Frank. Um, but but what really jumped out was uh, the awful racist comment and uh, pra- pra- practicing racist at one point. What's your take on mm-hmm. it? I mean, you just had to, you can like observe that 15 second clip that we just saw from him and understand why someone might like that might not want any legislation uh, to rein in online hate. He uses that kind of language with an alarming degree of frequency. And you may, listen, you may not like liberal policies or their communication strategy or the message or the politicians, but there's not a lot of people sitting around going, you know what I'd like to see a little more of? I'd like to see a little more of online hate. So I don't get this one at all. And I I think I've been pretty generous when it comes to the conservatives' communication strategy. This one they lose me on. The only thing I can imagine is that he feels that this will be a limitation to himself and to the conservative party writ large because they've engaged in that kind of rhetoric on social media and that this would limit them from doing so. But, you know, as a mom and having conversations with moms all the time, one of the single biggest concerns that we share amongst each other is having our kids exposed to the kind of online harm that happens. So this, I think, plays well with Canadians. And I believe the conservative party is wholly on the wrong side of this issue. So, uh, Jordan, what did you make of the language, though, he used there? Um, it just, it was a question about, there's going to be an, an updated definition of hate speech, potentially, is what we're hearing, and changes in the criminal code. Uh, you know, in, in a year where you've had a verdict on, like, the Offsell family being run down in, in London, you know, there, there are issues out there that need to be dealt with through legislation. And, and that response, what do you think? Well, I mean, I, I think it's really obviously lowering the bar on the policy debate uh, on this topic, which is a complicated topic, the balance between free speech yeah. and the restrictions and how do you manage all of those things. And so, I mean, look, I think it did a disservice to a, to a serious discussion that needs to be had, but I'm also not really surprised by it. This fits very much with how Polyev has approached the issue. There is a strong component of his base that cares a lot about free speech, and, and that's clearly who he was speaking to today. But I, I don't think his message in the end was actually very clean because the conservatives spent the the rest of the day also talking about issues like potentially wanting ID requirements to access pornography right. online. And so I think there's a real cognitive dissonance when you've when you've got your leader out there uh, complaining uh, and, and using this kind of vitriol when it's about regulating illegal activity online. We're talking about sexual exploitation, white supremacist hate speech, things like that. Um, but talking about increased ID requirements for accessing legal material. And and I'm not sure that that really adds up, uh, even for his audience on that. Shachi, uh, how, how do you think uh, voters and, and just Canadians are going to react to seeing things like that and hearing things like that? Or do you think they think it's fair ball? Depends which voters and depends which Canadians. Jordan's right. There is a significant amount of the conservative base today that describes itself as anti-woke, free speech absolute, uh, that would have, I think, some some real, depending on whatever the legislation says. This is why today has been so confusing, because we don't know what's in the legislation. But depending on what's in there, there's a lot of conservatives who would say, look, this is this is free speech restrictive. This goes too far far. Uh, This is going to lead to a a culture of self-censorship. That's the fear or that's the concern. That's what Pierre Polyev could have chosen to talk about today. There is, I think, 
uh, probably an internal pressure with the opposition leader who has actually displayed a remarkable amount of message discipline up until recently, really just continuing to pound the Prime Minister and the Liberal government on uh, tactical failures and on cost of living issues and on housing issues and all of those things that have really resonated not only with Conservatives but with a lot of disaffected soft Liberals. Really important to remember that those disaffected soft Liberals are not drifting away from the Liberal Party over culture issues mm. or around these types of issues or as Amanda pointed out around what's being put in front of their daughters on TikTok or online and not just their daughters but in most cases it's young girls uh, you know and, and dealing with the harms and, and the increased levels of depression and suicide and all those things. So uh, here was a day when Pierre Polyev could have made a lot of the same points without just tap dancing into some bizarre uh, statements and and not and, and I you know I think it's fair ball and fair play to remind Canadians that Justin Trudeau's hands are not necessarily clean on on his his issues with blackface and and, and mm -hmm. costume wearing but at the same time you know that's not that it, it, this this today was a day of just uh, scattershot communication, which is just so far off of where he is succeeding and where he has succeeding succeeded, which is just staying disciplined on these issues. Right. So, so Gary, I was on the the Liberal bus in the 2019 campaign when the blackface story broke, and I thought it was over. Mm. He was done. Mm. Trudeau's won two elections since mm -hmm. then. The country clearly knows about it. They've passed judgment on it, whether you agree with it or not, and, and whatever. But I just wonder where the line is now. I mean, Pierre Polly voted against gay marriage. Is it okay for a liberal to get up and call him a homophobe or ask why he was a homophobe, you know, back when he did that? Or can people change and evolve over time? You know what I mean? Like, it feels like the politics right now has gotten to a deep level of personal toxicity, and we saw some of that on display today. Like, where's the line? Well, well, on that front, there's lots of liberals who voted against same-sex marriage, Absolutely. including Lawrence McCauley sits at the cabinet table down, yep. down the road from the prime minister. But, you know, as I was saying earlier, I think there's a, probably a feeling from Mr. Polly of that, you know, when, when liberals express outrage about this, you know, you know, for the last days and weeks, we've had Mr. Polly have called all sorts of names, accused of lying and misleading and spreading misinformation and mega Trump conservatives and, and you name it, like I said, the justice minister, you know, swearing at him in the House of Commons. And I think that, you know, in some ways, Mr. Polyev is, is punching back. And I think in some ways, he is probably the only person in the Conservative caucus who can do that, who has the mm. communications chops to do that. And people that in the Conservative Party accept that. Whether or not that is going to be uh, a selling point to voters, that remains to, to be seen. But he's not afraid of going down that road. That's clear. And this will, no, not be, not this will not be the only time that he brings that up. He is willing to throw a punch and, uh, and, and we'll see how, how the Liberals clap back. Yeah, well, I, th I think Gary is exactly right that, that this is clearly, not only is he willing to do this, he loves this. He's here for this fight. Yeah. But I think that there's a real risk for him because it amplifies some of the negatives that we know that voters already hold or have, you know, have suspicions about his motivations. Um, and, you know, the other topic that he was out on today, of course, was the issue of, of trans people and trans women. Yeah. 
um, accessing mm-hmm. women's spaces. And look, uh, you know, I think that in 2023 that we're having effectively a debate around bathrooms is a little bit absurd. And the risk there is that on these issues, he can look as though he's punching down. He can really look as though he's targeting somebody who uh, who's in a weak position. And I don't think that that's good for him ultimately. For an announcement that was about natural health products, ostensibly, uh, it certainly took a, a bit of a, a turn somewhere along the line. Right, the and none of these things are about affordability, which no. is how he got his 20-point yeah. lead. Right, and, and the natural health product policy did not get a headline today, you know, if, if, if that was... Uh, no, well, but mm-hmm. you know, look, there, there's a bunch of things we can talk about how those news conferences go. Five questions, no follow-up, very often Rebel News and True North uh, are, are two of the questions that are always there at the front of the line. Um, but, but you know, Amanda, on this, right, like, you know, Gary's point, like Pierre Polyev is getting under liberal skin, and, you know, the, the effing tool line from Arif Ferrani that we withdrew and apologized for, you can see there is a lashing back. But, like, uh, today felt different. I don't know uh, if I'm right on that, but it, it seemed pretty aggressive. The prime minister didn't respond mm-hmm. in kind, perhaps because he can't because of the reasons that we've outlined. But where mm-hmm. does this lead, you know, in terms of uh, what the next election looks like and all the runway between now and then? Well, it looked like, you know, who got under whose skin today? And it was it was definitely Polyev. And it was kind of like, will the real Polyev please stand up? This harkened back to sort of the pre-rehabilitation effort, the $3 million ad campaign to work on his reputation and image. And this was much more of the attack dog style Polyev that we saw that preceded that. And listen, when you cannot make a coherent, constructive argument, you he lashes out to the kind of unsophisticated, juvenile argument that you saw today. So I would say, take a page from your regurgitated Mike Harris playbook of common sense and use some in an argument like this because it was so low bar setting the standard and, and honestly playing into a lot of the critique and criticism uh, that he faced prior to that big rehabilitation campaign. So Shachi on that, like, uh, you know, this looks nothing like the jigsaw puzzle ad, <laughs> you know, and, 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 you know, and, and they've done a good job no. with their advertising campaign of, 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 you know, softening some of those sharp edges, but those sharp edges on full display today. I mean, is there a potential risk there? Absolutely. It cuts back. It cuts back the wrong way. It cuts back in a way where he was already. I mean, let's just put the prime minister's net negatives aside in terms of his approval. Just like put them aside. The, the, the PM at this stage over the last several years has been something of a lost cause on approval. But Pierre Polyev is, you know, the, the challenge for him, the challenge for the conservatives is to be able to frame their leader as somebody likable. Uh, and mm-hmm. yes, he is incredibly liked and, and people, uh, particularly men and men over the age of 35, just really enjoy and adore that raw, raw energy that he brings, but it cuts exactly the opposite way with women. They look at that almost twerpy, bro, punch-throwing side of it, and they go, no, like, no, dude, no, this is not for us. And so, you know, he can do all the jigsaw puzzles he wants to do. Uh, He can can take uh, a reasonable and coherent and cogent, maybe boring to him, fight to the Trudeau government over what exactly is going to be in that legislation and 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 get the the PM and the liberals on the defensive and on the back end having to tap dance about what it all means because I'm pretty sure they don't have really mm-hmm. good explanations for it themselves right now uh, but instead oh, he did know. this and and I don't get it 
Yeah, so Gary, just a, a, a final word to you. I mean, to Shachi's point, women has been a historic weakness. Mm-hmm. Women voters with conservatives, you know, the ads seem pretty much targeted at them. How do you think a moment like this plays uh, with women voters? Well, it's a moment in time. Uh, we'll see if there's any impact on the polling. But right now, Mr. Polyev has been meeting Mr. Trudeau for about eight months in the polls because he has been focused on the issues that people uh, really have been caring about. Affordability, cost of living, housing. But when he strays uh, off of that... But, but you know what? At some point, people are... They want change. They... In, they, they're desperate for change, and a moment like this may not actually matter. They may say, yeah, he's got a few sharp edges, but you know what? We're so desperate for change, we need a guy who's going to stand up and be strong. Well, we'll see. Those women voters last in could be first out. So I think there's definitely some downside risk there for Polyev if he continues to amplify his negatives, especially among that crowd. Okay, well, we know one woman... Say- oh, go ahead, Amanda. Let's- <laughs> what did you want to say? Sorry, and they may say, if you're going to show us who you really are, We'll believe you. If it walks like a duck and it acts like a duck, it might be one. Okay. Uh, we're out of time. We're going to leave it there. Thank you so much. Amanda Alvaro, Jordan Likeness, Shachi Curl, Gary Keller. Thanks, gang. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.